Support for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center, located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome to Health Matters. I am your ho-ho host and radio health evangelist, Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Holiday Shopping Companion Show. That's right, we at Health Matters are in your pocket, ready to guide you through your holiday shopping with some useful health tips and witty banter. Thanks to our listeners at True Talk Internet Radio and a special radio wave to the MSU Ronald G. Eaglin Space Science Center staff. My co-medical hosts here, we are once again shaking up the world of co-medical hosts. Rick Phillips has, have no idea. He is somewhere, uh, but not at the show today. And also, uh, Shelly Irving operating at half-mast, I would say, uh, due to an upper respiratory infection. Uh, Assistant professor at University of Kentucky, Shelly Irving, to try to uh, provide a counterpoint to my ridiculous opinions. Hey, Shelly. Hello. Our sponsor to listen to the show, it's WMKY.org. That's right. That's the website where you can download previous recordings of our show. And then also, we do post some things, and we will answer your questions and talk to you on Facebook on HM Radio Show. Now, you, our, our regular listeners may have noticed, I have dropped my presence on Facebook quite a bit. That is, I still check the website, and occasionally we'll put something that is so amazing, I feel like it's got to be out there. But uh, we are not posting as much on Facebook. We are still trying to determine our best social media platform. I'm kind of mad at Facebook, I guess would be the way to put it. What would Facebook ever do to you? Well, it stifles free speech, and uh, it uh, uh, stifles creativity and gives... Uh, a place for people to uh, spout uh, opinions anonymously, and that bothers me. True. Anyway, uh, that uh, is how you can access our show on the Internet. Our sponsor, this is, I, I was disappointed in this last week, and I thought we really need to get this right. Colon cancer prevention, let's get rolling and protect our colon. Now, the thing we talked about last week, and I'm going to repeat this uh, so that everybody is aware of it, on November 4th, the American College of Physicians, this is a large group of internal medicine doctors, uh, non-surgical doctors for adults, and they come up, they came up with their colon cancer, colorectal cancer screening guidelines. Uh, they said, if you are average risk, that is, you do not have a heavy family history, you do not have a personal history of uh, colon cancer, you do not have a history of one of these polyp syndromes where you have uh, dozens to hundreds of polyps in your colon. If you are average risk, you should start screening at age 50 and you should continue screening until age 75. The way you can screen, they gave three ways Practically, in the state of Kentucky and most of the United States, there's only two of them that you can do. One is the colonoscopy, the full colonoscopy, the full Monty, every 10 years. This involves taking a bunch of medicines to clear all the stool out of your colon. Not a pleasant experience. No. And a weekend lost. And then going and having a colonoscopy, which is perfectly fine because you sleep through the whole thing. Uh, and looking for polyps. Now, these polyps themselves are not cancer, but we believe if you leave the polyps in, they will turn into cancer. Colonoscopy will not find every single cancer. There are cancers that can come up in between your colonoscopies, or they could miss it. There are lots of ways that you could get colon cancer, but colonoscopy is very effective at reducing the most common way people get colon cancer. And so it is recommended for people that are high risk, everyone get colonoscopy, and then for those that are average risk, age 50 to 70, colonoscopy every 10 years. We start on the 10s, 50, 60, and 70, and done. 
if you do not have any polyps. If you have polyps, then they do more frequent follow-up. The second one is the one that we've seen on TV. That's called fecal immunochemical testing. They do a immunochemical test for blood. We used to just test uh, something called guaiac for blood, and basically uh, just about anything you ate would turn that thing positive and could be messed. This is, is actually a direct test for blood, and that's recommended every two years. Now, they mentioned a flexible sigmoidoscopy as their third option, but you really can't get that reliably in uh, most places in Kentucky, and I believe most places in the United States, so we leave that off. Either you get the test of the blood every two years, test for blood in your stool every two years, or the colonoscopy every 10 years are the two main ones that they're recommending. Uh, It should not be done in average-risk adults older than age 75 or with a life expectancy less than 10 years. So, you know, what if everyone in your family lives to age 100? I don't know. I have talked to several of my patients who are blessed with very good family history and genetics, and I've said, we might want to switch over to the immunochemical testing uh, once you get to age eight, once your last colonoscopy runs out. So if you get one at 70, then instead of getting a colonoscopy on your own dime at age 80, maybe you should get these, uh, these blood tests and still look for it because you don't want to live to age 89 and die of colorectal cancer. You think, if you could prevent it. So I don't know that there's no recommendation for the American College of Physicians, but I'm trying to work with some of my people who may be destined for a longer life expectancy. Equally difficult, what do you do if they, it looks like they have a life expectancy less than 10 years? How do you, how do you tell that and how do you tell the patient? That's probably tougher than anticipating a longer life, right? <clears throat> it's easier to say, let's switch over and do a less invasive study as opposed to saying... I don't think we're going to need to do any study. And I think, you know, many of my patients, they see their their ancestors uh, lived a long time, uh, and that's reliable. But I have have a number of patients, they think, oh, yeah, I got 10 years easy, and I'm going, I'm not sure you do. But I'm not going to tell them that. I'm going to say, look, don't bother. You're going to die. Because I don't, I, you know, I, I do not have the tools to predict the 10-year life expectancy. There are not uh, lab tests we can look for for that. Anyway, that is our sponsor, Colorectal cancer prevention and screening. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. We'll have more information on that in our second fractional portion. We are broadcasting from Kentucky, which has been ranked the fifth worst state to live in by 24-7 Wall Street, which hey, is I a think we've online. Improved. You think? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> when That's I read that, news. we go, fifth worst. I go, hmm. Okay, <laughs> we're making progress uh, because we have been at the bottom. What they did, and this was a this was a pretty easy thing to do. Uh, they used the United Nations Development Program Human Development Index (HDI), and it had three. They they took three measures out of that Human Development Index. One, life expectancy at birth. So right away you can see we're in trouble. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, bachelor's degree attainment doesn't get much better, and poverty. In those three measures, life expectancy at birth, bachelor's degree, and poverty, that's what got us down to ranking 46 out of 50. Unemployment rate, we were 10th highest in 2018 at 4.3%. I thought I would take, most years I would take 4.3% unemployment. The poverty rate I mentioned, and our population change over the past 10 years, we have grown 3.6%. That is the 17th lowest. Now, once again, if you're in Kentucky, you're not here for the population. No. You want to live next to a lot of people, you go to New York. So I'm okay with that. I think that may speed up if the wildfires, the earthquakes, if Florida goes underwater, uh, they're going to have to move somewhere. And, hey, we got room. And cost of living is pretty low in places. 
Right. Now, if you look at the life expectancy, there's a couple of, I, I'm not calling them shining stars or anything like that, but, but when you think about Kentucky's life expectancy, it's the third lowest, three and a half years below the national average, and again, parts of our state are at the national average. Smoking is the leading cause of premature death in the United States, and nearly one in every four Kentucky adults smoke. We have the, that's the second highest smoking rate in the country. Now, if it is smoking that brings our life expectancy down, then if you can find a place that has a public smoking ban so that you don't have to smoke their cigarettes and you yourself don't smoke, then that goes away. So if our life expectancy was low because of gang violence, well, that's a pretty hard thing to, you know, that, that you don't have control over that. But right now, you can avoid Kentucky's leading cause of death. The main thing that is dragging our life expectancy down, you don't have to participate in that. Handy. The bottom 10 worst states to live in, number 10, South Carolina, 9, Tennessee, New Mexico is number 8, Oklahoma, number 7, Alabama, number 6, Kentucky comes in at number 5, Arkansas, number 4, Louisiana, number 3, West Virginia, number 2, and Mississippi is the 50th out of 50, the worst state to live in by the United Nations Human Development Program, Human Development Index, again, by their life expectancy, their educational levels, and their poverty. And those three are very, very much related. Poverty and low education leads to low life expectancy pretty reliably. And the majority of them are in the South. Yes. As well. So, Yep. As a matter of fact, other than, and New Mexico, New Mexico is an honorary Southern state. When you look at their drug abuse and their uh, poverty and their educational levels, uh, we will accept them into that cadre of Southern states that everyone in the United States is so embarrassed by. You know another problem with Kentucky? What? What's another problem? You can't get a cheap hamburger here. Well, not a good one anyway. <laughs> I actually I wanted to do some, some short things, you know, that, again, people could listen to and then go do their Christmas shopping. And so I've been saving this actually since June. I'm trying to find where I could put it in, and here it is. Kentucky is the second, the second in terms of hot dog and hamburger per capita consumption in the nation by dollar amount. Kentuckians spend the second highest total on hamburgers and dog, hot dogs per capita in the United States. We average $361 a year eating at hot dog and hamburger restaurants. What do you think? You, uh, you're going to go above average or below average on that uh, 361 oh, I've, I've got an 11-year-old son, so we're, we might be above average on the hot dogs. Well, the embarrassing thing is I don't have any yeah. kids at home anymore. I think we're still <laughs> above average. <laughs> hey, if, if, you, if you want to go out in Moorhead, you're, you're looking at burgers. <laughs> That's true. Not a whole lot of other that options. True. $361 a year. But here's the thing. When you look at the number of hamburgers eaten per capita, we're 22nd. You look at the total sales, we're second. So we're either not eating them or they're yeah, we're either really expensive. Tossing the hamburgers or they're expensive. And that means when you look at the top 10, I'll, I'll do the top five. Oklahoma's number five. Well, if you don't eat beef in Oklahoma, you've missed the boat. You did not read the instruction right. book. Right. Uh, number four is Tennessee. Number three, Arkansas. Number two, Kentucky. And number one, the highest expenditure for hamburgers in the nation per capita, Hawaii. Does that include spam burgers? Maybe. 
Spam dogs? I, think, I, don't I, think it, I think it is hard to get hamburgers to Hawaii. I mean, you, you and I looked, and they're the seventh highest in terms of consumption, but they are number one with a, we're 361 per year. They are $374 per year per person uh, they spend on hamburgers, I think, because they just can't get their hands on the hamburgers. Yeah, they probably don't have much in the way of cattle ranches in Hawaii. Right, I and I say, do not so. think that Hawaiians are in love with ground beef. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so there's some things to ponder. We are fifth worst in the nation as far as living. And, and again, with those markers, with poverty, uh, with uh, educational attainment, and with life expectancy, and they are interrelated. And also, just for your education, you can't get a good cheap hamburger in Kentucky. You can get a break here, though. We're going to take one and come back with our second fractional portion. You're listening to Health Matters on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome back to Health Matters. This is the second fractional portion. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. Hang in there, Shelley. I'm, I'm hanging. <laughs> <laughs> this is our holiday shopping companion show. That's right. Carry Health Matters around for your holiday shopping this weekend. Our sponsor for the second time, Colon Cancer Prevention. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. Now, we talked about screening last time. And just a reminder, if you are a person in the United States with access to ordinary health care services, the American College of Physicians says there are two possibilities. If you are average risk, that is, you do not have a heavy history, a family history of colon cancer, you do not have a family history of those, uh, they call them hereditary polyposis syndromes. These are syndromes that you get from your ancestors and and you have dozens to hundreds of polyps in your colon, and you are at a higher risk of colon cancer. Also, people with inflammatory bowel disease have a higher risk of colon cancer. If you are none of those things, you are just an average Joe or Jane Schmo. Jane Schmo, you like that? Jane Schmo. Jane Schmo. Uh, if you're an average person, then ages 50 to 75, screen with colonoscopy every 10 years, or the fecal testing, they call it fit testing, the box that uh, finds things on the TV commercial every two years, again, ages 50 to 75. Now, a couple of things you need to know. Kentucky has the highest rate of colorectal cancer in the nation. Might be all those expensive burgers. That's, that's what I was going to say. Knew. Yeah, it's the, the expensive burgers. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. It is the third leading cause of cancer death in women and men. Again, in the state of Kentucky, we're looking at around 3,400 and change. People die every year uh, of lung cancer. Sorry, second highest in combined population, 800 people die of colorectal cancer. Breast cancer kills 600 women per year. Prostate cancer kills 400 men per year. Colorectal cancer, third among women, third among men, but you put them together. And it is the second leading cause of cancer death behind lung cancer. What that means then is if you are a non-smoker and you get cancer, you're probably going to get colorectal cancer. And this is the one you fear. This is the one, fortunately, you can screen for and reduce your risk substantially. Here are the risk factors for colorectal cancer. Number one, you're overweight or you're obese. Your risk is higher. Larger waistline raises the risk of colon and rectal cancer in men and women. Stronger link in men than in women. If you are not physically active, and you wonder if that's just a, another way of saying if you are overweight or obese, mm -hmm. it, it's possible. 
We're working on what we call the gut flora, the germs that are present in your gut, your colon biome. It may be that some germs promote cancer more than others, and that may be related to diet. I, I don't have any statement on that, but just keep an eye out for that because there may be possibility that that will also raise your risk, but we don't know. Certain types of diets. They talk about diets that are high in red meats, beef, pork, lamb, or liver, and processed meats like hot dogs. Raises your cancer risk. Cooking meats at high temperatures, frying, broiling, or grilling creates chemicals that might raise the cancer risk, but that's not clear. And I'll go back even to the red meats and the processed meats. Uh, there has been a linkage. The problem is, uh, and we talked about this uh, if you go back about three or four shows, the type of food you eat, particularly the type of meats you eat, are linked to culture to your family's dietary habits, to your religion, and to say that the meat in isolation is the cause of the cancer. When you're talk, you're trying to compare people with very different lifestyles, I think is not very good science. I will say, you know, that the American Cancer Society still says to, to this day, we, we recorded this show last week, and when we recorded this show, the American Cancer Society says a diet that's high in red meats or processed meats raises your risk of colon cancer. I am not convinced that the science is strong in that. If I were trying to make changes, I think there's a lot of reasons not to eat meat, but I'm not sure that uh, saving yourself from cancer is one of them. Smoking. Long-time cigarette smokers are more likely to develop colorectal cancer, more likely to die from colorectal cancer. Heavy alcohol use. Moderate, no, heavy alcohol use. More than two drinks a day for men, more than one drink a day for women. Not that heavy, actually. But alcohol use does raise your risk of colon cancer. It's one of the problems with what we call social drinking. You may not be drunk. You may not uh, get a DUI. You may not run over your dog. But uh, if you drink, even socially, uh, it does raise your risk of cancer. And one of the cancers it raises your risk of is colorectal cancer. So to me, we're pushing the red meat because other people, people with lower education, lower socioeconomic status, they eat red meat. We're kind of lightly touching on the alcohol as a society because civilized people drink alcohol and we don't want to mess up their lifestyle. Best I can tell, the evidence is a little stronger for alcohol than it is for the, the red meat. Just saying. Um, and in Kentucky, in addition to our hamburger hot dog predilections, we have the second highest tobacco use in the nation. Less than a tenth of our adults eat fruits or vegetables. More than a third of us don't engage in physical activity. And two-thirds of us over 20 are overweight or obese. And I so, think we hit just about all the risk factors. And we are number one in colorectal cancer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there it is. Now, there, there's one thing that uh, was kind of interesting. Whitney Jones in Louisville, he is the founder of the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Whitney has done more to prevent colon cancer than just about any other Kentuckian. It was Whitney that got a giant inflatable colon and Governor Bashir to stand in front of a colon, which is a dangerous place to stand, I would point out, and to announce state funding for uh, colorectal cancer screening. He has done amazing. He's been on the show a few years ago, and I was just blown away. This is a, a really passionate guy uh, who uh, spends a lot of his time trying to prevent colon cancer. He says, we have a way to help you not get cancer. Genetic testing, he thinks, will improve patient outcomes and lower cancer-related outcomes as well. It identifies mutations in your chromosomes, which could be harmful to your health, and that uh, constitutes between 5 and 10% of all cancers. It's become very accurate, he says, but only 1 in 10 people get genetic testing. Now, he is right 
But when you think about the genetics of colorectal cancer, I'll put it this way. If every single member of your family drops dead of colon cancer, you should have genetic testing. Absolutely. If your family members are getting colonoscopies and having many, many polyps removed, you might have one of those inherited polyp syndromes, and you need to get genetic testing. For the average person, and I I still have patients coming in, they send their their genes off to Ancestry.com or somewhere, and they they come in and say, you know, what kind of health problems do I need to worry about? And, And that we have not gotten to that level where the average person can make a meaningful assessment of their risk. But if you have a heavy family history of, frankly, any type of cancer, but for the purposes of this show, colorectal cancer, genetic testing makes sense to you. You should talk to your healthcare provider about that. Have you recommended genetic testing? Very rarely, um, because I think there's been a, a hesitancy. There, there's some mistrust, I think, between the patients in wanting to have it done, afraid of what it might reveal and how it might affect their insurance coverage. And then, you know, some of those tests until recently have not really been covered well by insurance companies. So it's an added cost that, that our patients here just can't um, or don't, don't value enough to pay for. Yeah, we are working on it. The uh, legislature has passed a bill to try to improve our ability to to screen. Earlier this uh, this year, Kentucky legislators legislators passed a bill to require health insurance to cover genetic tests for cancer when recommended by a licensed medical professional. So that's one thing that's out of the way. I will say for my own personal practice, I spend a lot of time with geriatric patients. Uh, who are on the upper edge of the screening anyway. And really, if you are in your 70s or 80s, there is not a whole lot of useful genetic information out there that uh, you can get from testing your genes, in my opinion. And we'll, we'll see if I'm right or wrong. And, and a lot of that information is to help advise as far as um, during the childbearing years, right? And so right. by that point, they've already had the children they're going to have. There's grandchildren. It's, it's, it's very difficult at that point to make a meaningful um, impact. Makes sense. That's our sponsor, Colorectal Cancer, Colon and Cancer Prevention. Let's get rolling and protect our colon. Now, the the next part of this show, we're going to throw out some provocative quotes, some provocative opinions uh, that uh, I've been saving up so that, uh, again, you know, this will keep you awake while you're driving from one shopping mall to the outlets stores in another shopping mall. This is Os Al-Zaid, uh, November 15th. He went to the 2019 European Association for the Study of Diabetes meeting. And that's where they present uh, popular opinions, experts, uh, new research, and so forth. Uh, The most boring meeting you can imagine, unless you're really a diabetes enthusiast. But he stopped in. Basically, they, they advertised it as a debate on whether or not we should emphasize not sitting. Not sitting. As a health measure. Should we, okay. should we condemn sitting as bad for your health? So first uh, speaker was David Dunstan, who's uh, head of the Physical Activity Laboratory at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia. And this guy has done a lot of research himself, and he is an expert. He says, we know that the mortality curve accelerates once you sit more than nine hours per day. Now, you can already see then the counter argument. Okay, if you sit less than nine hours a day and we start telling everyone not to sit, a lot of people who sit six, seven, or eight hours a day are. Yeah, they're they're probably not going to get a lot of benefits from uh, uh, buying a new desk and uh, standing up uh, while they're watching their TV or whatever. There's a 22% increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes for each additional hour spent in sedentary state after the nine hours. 
standing upright can short bursts of light physical activity, moving, stretching, light walking can really help your sugar if you are a diabetic. One third of people with type 2 diabetes don't undertake any form of physical activity. So I think, you know, first of all, everybody agrees we need to be more physically active. That's not what we're debating here. The question is, should we have a campaign against sitting to try to force people to be more physically activity, more active? And well, that, they, he's are, given the best evidence. Those are two different things, though, right? Not sitting and being more physically active. Well, that's that's really the argument of the second speaker. Uh, but he says, oh, you, look, we've got to end uh, this physical inactivity, and sitting is a part of bad physical activity. Here's where I think it got controversial. Uh, this is what I, I wanted our radio fans to hear. This is Jason Gill. He's a Ph.D. at the Institute of Cardiovascular and Medical Sciences in Glasgow, Scotland. Two interesting observations. One, you get the first eight hours free. That is no detrimental effect on health. And that's the thing that we just pointed out uh, from the other one. We know the average sitting time reported by most people is six to eight hours per day. Now, that may not be so in the U.S. If you have a public campaign to reduce sitting and you can't prove it's of any benefit to the average person, then it's not much of a public health campaign. We need to focus on activity. Not sure we need to focus on sitting. Now, the second thing he points out, uh, most of the evidence about sedentary behavior comes from studies of people who watch TV. Now, think about you on a couch watching TV, snacking. Yeah, uh, nice big tub of movie theater popcorn. popcorn. Yeah. Now, doing all that uh, versus a person who is sitting in an office chair working at a computer or, or uh, answering a phone or doing things like that. Those That's really two different levels of physical activity within the sitting spectrum. You like that? Mm-hmm. Okay. The sitting spectrum. Yeah. So the impact, let's say we could shave an hour off of sitting. Let's say we are in that over eight hours area. If we could get an hour less, the benefit is about the equivalent of walking for about two and a half minutes a day, he says. So if we're going to promote something, do we promote a hydraulic desk that goes up and down and allows you to stand for an hour less, uh, stand for an hour a day? Or do we say, get up and walk two and a half minutes during your break? A minute of leisure physical act, leisure time physical activity is about, it cancels out about an extra hour of sitting, he says. Now, I have seen those, I've seen that come into question. I've seen some people say, look, even if you're active after work, the sitting itself mm-hmm. uh, really slows you down. Uh, now, once again, what were they measuring? They may have been measuring TV watching sitting and not office sitting. So I don't know if a person has a long office job or a long sitting job, uh, I'm not sure that I understand from the science I have what that does to their health. It's not good, but I don't know how bad it is. Yeah, it's two very different types of sitting, right? If I'm sitting at my desk and I'm using the mouse and I'm using a lot of brain power and I'm moving my upper body, that's very different from sitting in the the chair at home with my feet kicked up and the snacks watching TV. Yeah. And so he came away from this debate. He said, well, if we're going to have a public health message, if we're going to try to help the vast majority of people, it may be move more and move more often is a better message than sit less, because that implies if you just raise your desk, uh, if you just stand up, 
uh, that uh, uh, you're, you're actually uh, improving your health. And he feels like the, the movement is the thing. I tend to agree with him. I think when you look at the total picture, when you look at both the, the calories burned, I mean, we all talk about uh, exercise as a method of maintaining or losing weight, but also the idea of getting up on our feet, getting out, interacting with the world, uh, using our muscles, uh, increasing our heart rate, and so forth. Standing just doesn't do that. And so if you have a public health message, it probably should be move and move more often. Uh, that's the key thing. I like that. Next controversial statement. Well, this, this is a fact, but it is just it just blew me away. This was uh, the American College of Rheumatology meeting, and this was uh, November 10th. They did a survey of 1,000 people who were diagnosed with some form of musculoskeletal rheumatic disease. That is, they might have osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, all that type of thing. And they asked them about marijuana use, and they found out of people with different types of arthritis and musculoskeletal problems, 40% of them used marijuana for pain relief. Almost half. Almost half are using marijuana for pain relief. 93% use it for a specific condition. They're not just saying, well, I feel sore, so I take marijuana. They're saying, I use it for my hip. I use it for my knee pain. I use it for my back pain. The uh, person who did this was uh, Benjamin Noel, Ph.D., director of the patient-centered research at Creaky Joints. Creaky Joints. You know, you go, is this a reliable source? (laughs) (laughs) A guy at Creaky Joints. Do I trust him? Well, they did this survey again, uh, and they mentioned one of the big things is 77% of the patients in the survey lived in a state where medical marijuana use is legal. The interesting thing, though, is only 40% of the people in the survey had cards to purchase it legally. Uh, 40% of the people who were using it had cards to purchase it legally. So, you know, what you see then is kind of a bleed over. Uh, a lot of them were, uh, there was marijuana around, but they did not necessarily take all the steps to access medical marijuana legally. Now, they might have been in a state where recreation was okay. Why would you go get a buyer's card if you can just get it anyway? Uh, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of this. this. This left me with a lot of questions, but I was shocked, frankly, to find out that uh, 40% of uh, people with uh, arthritis and other rheumatic conditions were using marijuana. I, I I guess I shouldn't have been. I would tell you in the state of Kentucky, just in my geriatric population, hemp oil or CBD oil right now, the, the use is extremely widespread. It is rare to find a person with an, with an arthritic condition, and again, most of my patients have them, uh, that hasn't at least tried it. Uh, some success, uh, some not success. There's no standard purity of the product, so I don't know if they're actually getting anything or not. I don't know what else is in it. So far, none of them have gone to the ER with a side effect or complication. Nobody's in the ICU on a breathing machine from, from it. So I, I, I tell my patients, that's about all I know. I do not know if it's pure. I do not know if it's effective. But a lot of people are using it. And that brings me, that's the fact. Here's the comment. Robert Solomon, he's the co-chair of the University of California at Irvine's Center for the Study of Cannabis. And he said, And I'm quoting this. He said, I had a doctor complain that a California university told her that under no circumstances is she to prescribe cannabis. Here she is, knowing it's going to help with nausea, knowing it's going to help with pain, but she's been told not to prescribe it. And that is medical malpractice to me. But do we really know that it helps with nausea? Or that the benefits outweigh the risk. Right. Do we know that? 
That's where I disagree. I think it's malpractice to not have all the information that you need before you start prescribing Well, I was thinking about the term malpractice because you and I have been around long enough. We remember when the opioids really started, when the opioid manufacturers pushed their product, Mm -hmm. they marketed pain as a fifth vital sign. They Mm -hmm. they basically paid experts to make that a fifth vital sign. And um, they actually won some malpractice cases where pain was undertreated since we have these new completely safe opioid medicines that you could use to treat pain. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll let you ponder on that fact, and we're coming back with our third and final fractional portion. You're listening to Health Matters on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center, located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome back to Health Matters. This is the third and final fractional portion. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is our holiday shopping companion show. And Shelley, you know, this is like the young Shelley Irving. It's, it's like you know, you, your voice is actually not lower, it's higher. And, and I, I'm now, I'm here with teenage Shelley Irving. Yeah, puberty again. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. When do you get your driver's license? And so, anyway, we were uh, we are uh, talking about uh, the the things you need to know while you're doing your holiday gift shopping. I guess uh, we left it on a rather, I think, again, a provocative note here. Uh, is it medical malpractice not to prescribe marijuana since we know nothing about what it does reliably? I mean, I, I understand uh, there are lots of anecdotal reports. There are lots of people who would testify this is the greatest stuff ever. And I think it, it certainly, when all the dust settles, there will be something that uh, some good uh, that uh, medical marijuana can do. I don't know what that is. Right. And until I know that, until I can assess the risk, uh, it's there are two things that I remember. And again, we look back at the vaping. Do not put something in your mouth unless you know where it came from. And that's what's uh, gotten us into a lot of problems with vaping. And then secondly, there's nothing you can put in your mouth and set fire to and come out unscathed. When you think about the firefighters, it's not like they say, oh, we've got a, here's a pot farm. Uh, we won't have to worry about respiratory protection during this brush fire. Smoke is smoke is smoke. None of that stuff is good for your lungs. All of it has consequences, and we'll see. And obviously a psychoactive substance. Uh, Weaver's other rule, which is controversial, is anything that temporarily affects your brain permanently affects your brain. Mm-hmm. That is a concussion, that is uh, alcohol, that is uh, sleeping pills, that is antidepressants, that is marijuana. If and it more tempor- recently, Benadryl. That Benadryl. has come out in the news. Yeah. And so if it temporarily affects your brain, it permanently affects your brain. These are the things that I've got rattling around in my head when someone says it is medical malpractice not to prescribe cannabis products uh, for uh, uh, what? For I, I don't even know what disease. I beg to differ. I don't think we have that level of science. I hope still that we in the medical community are supposed to analyze the risks and benefits scientifically before we, we're not just selling snake oil, we're actually trying to provide scientific help to people. That's what I started doing, and, and uh, I, if, uh, if that is malpractice, then I am guilty. And as I said, that was exactly the argument, and, and I'm embarrassed by this. Why, why would I not learn? The one time we did not do well with this was when the opioid manufacturers basically bought the experts to say that it was medical malpractice not to prescribe opioid pain relievers to people in pain. Uh, so, I, you know, if, first of all, I don't want to act like I'm pure and I'm better than anybody else. This was exactly one of the big mistakes I made here in eastern Kentucky. 
Um, I t- will tell you, I rebelled against it, uh, I, uh, but I'm not a noble person. I did prescribe those medicines, um, and uh, I'm not uh, I'm not proud of that. And uh, I certainly don't want to, in under any circumstances, go through that sort of thing again. So I am very, very suspicious about a new uh, mind-altering drug of any sort, uh, whether it's the so-called natural. I mean, there's nothing more natural than poppies. They're beautiful. They're flowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're wonderful. You make heroin, heroin out of them. And they are natural. So if you're trying to argue that uh, marijuana is a natural product, so by golly is heroin. All right. So that's our uh, uh, that's from last time. Back to the sponsor, colon cancer prevention. Let's get rolling. Protect our colon. Very briefly, again, the guidance from the American College of Physicians, which I happen to like. Average risk. No heavy family history of colon cancer. No polyposis syndrome. Uh, if you are age 50 to 75, colonoscopy every 10 years or the fecal immunochemical testing, the FIT testing, the box where you put your stool and they test it for blood every two years. Those are the recommendations for average-risk people. Now, that's also if you don't have symptoms. If you are passing blood with your stools, then uh, there is not a screening test for you. We need to find out where that blood comes from, and the only way to do that is with a scope. So uh, do not uh, uh, these. What we're talking about is a person who is in perfect good health, no symptoms, and wants to lower their risk of colorectal cancer. Now, again, the risk factors. Keep in mind, Kentucky, the number one highest rate of colorectal cancer in the nation, and the risk factors being overweight or obese, physical inactivity, certain types of diets, and the American Cancer Society still says red meats and processed meats, smoking and heavy alcohol use. All those things raise your risk. And there are other conditions, such as the inherited syndromes and also inflammatory bowel disease, which raise your risk of colorectal cancer. Do something about this. If you are 50 to 75, uh, do not let yourself fall victim to a condition you may be able to prevent. Next up, and we just keep going because this was a week. I, I, I was sitting there just scratching my head when I looked at this stuff. This came actually from November 14th. This was a study by the West Health Policy Center in Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore, reported out November 14th. Several outlets did this, and I just picked up one of them. They said, uh, now, the backstory on this is the pharmaceutical industry right now is under fire because their drugs are too expensive. People are not able, people with insurance, people with jobs, uh, people who can afford homes and cars and other things are not able to afford their medications because these drugs are priced at the absolute top level that will make you scream, but still maybe some people will buy them. Their lobbying group, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, has been arguing in front of the legislature, that again, nationally in D.C., that the Nancy Pelosi's drug pricing bill would not allow them to spend as much money on research and development. They would produce fewer life-saving drugs. If you cut the costs, then American people will be in jeopardy, is what they said. So this analysis said they could lose more than $1 trillion, more than $1 trillion, that's with a trillion on it, dollars, and they would still be the most profitable sector of our economy. Yeah, and they and they can't manage to pull off a little research. This is the level of stockpiling of money, the level of return on investment that our pharmaceutical industry does. They hold the American citizens hostage. Mm-hmm. We cannot get our drugs from other countries where they have reasonable prices, and instead we are held hostage and we must pay these outrageously high prices to boost their profits. And it's driving um, insurance costs up. It, I mean, it, it's, there's a whole plethora of problems that come from that. Sean Dixon, Director of Health Policy 
He said he's the lead author. He said, given these findings, it is unlikely that large drug drug manufacturers could weather the reductions in drug spending scored. I'm sorry. It is. I'm sorry. It is likely they could weather reductions uh, scored under the recent legislative proposal. So uh, there is no sympathy for these guys. They are making outrageous profits, uh, more profits than uh, they should at the expense of sick people. There are things like insulin, which has been around for a hundred years and is still three hundred or more dollars per bottle. And many uh, diabetics may be taking two different types of insulin, 600 bucks a month just for their insulin. If you are a healthcare provider, this stuff makes you angry because healthcare is a weird mixture between some people who are crusaders and missionaries and would probably do what they're doing for free and other people who are getting paid absolutely top dollar sports figure movie star money to be in the the same market with these people who are volunteering their services. I know so many nurses, we were talking about this today, who even with these uh, computer records, now they're taking them home. They're working an hour, uh, two hours extra every day because they believe in taking care of the patients. They're doing that absolutely free. Uh, If uh, this was a union, this would change. I know many physicians who are working extra hours uh, on this and physician assistants and other health care providers that are providing their time because they want to make sure these patients are are doing well. Now, you can say they get paid well, and that's fair, but still, they are are working harder than they worked before we put in the electronic medical record to try to make sure that they take care of you. I know people of all all places in our hospitals, in our healthcare system, everything from the, the orderlies, the people that uh, uh, bring the medicines, bring the supplies, and so forth, they are there because they have a compelling interest in trying to help people. And then I know people who are people of business, and their main question, I, and they're, they're very, they're good business people. Their job is to bring the highest profit possible. And many of them are working in uh, the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance industry. And those people existing side by side is a very, very strange mix, I think. Well, it is. And then, you know, we this this interesting mix functions within this capitalistic society where everybody wants everything right now, real, real fast on their doorstep, you know, point of care, highest value, everything. You know, it is an interesting mix, and all that collides, and now we have these issues. I will tell you, I am skeptical. I have not seen anything that I felt that was financially viable. We have these huge, huge profit centers like the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance industry, that are going to fight tooth and nail to keep the current system. It works for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have enormous resources. It would be almost suicidal for a politician to take them on. We, the people, have to empower our politicians to do that, and we're so divided we can't do it. Well, so, and, and we don't have, you know, the people of eastern Kentucky, like we don't have our own lobbyists to go up nope. against uh, these um, companies that are making large profits. So, But at least, again, the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, uh, in their analysis, they pointed out that the the pharmaceutical industry is doing just fine. Do not be concerned about them uh, when it comes to reducing drug prices. They they will be fine. We believe Mm -hmm. they should have the heft and the ability to continue research even on a more lean budget. We think so. November 19th, the American Medical Association call for a total ban on all vaping products that haven't been approved by the FDA to help quit smoking. Interesting. Think it'll work? No. It's it's like it's just like the pharmaceutical stuff, it's just like the insurance stuff. What you're saying is we're going to throttle down uh Philip Morris and the tobacco industry. We're going to throttle down their latest 
venture, their their economic venture. Uh, it, from their standpoint, it's a safe cigarette. Now, this safe cigarette, uh, we're now at the time we're recording this, 2,000 people sickened and in our ICUs uh, due to this product. 42 have died. Now, you think about it. It's Christmas. Let's say we put out, let's take all the medical part out of it. Let's say we put out a toy mm-hmm. that put 2,000 people in the intensive care unit and killed 42. That toy would go off the market. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is vaping more essential than a Christmas toy? No. See, the problem is Shelly agrees with me on everything. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that here's the problem, I think. You know, the, it started out being a safer cigarette for people trying to get off combustible cigarettes, right? But that's not the market that they ended up capturing. <laughs> the market that they've ended up capturing is suffering some real negative um, consequences from these these safer cigarettes that they didn't need in the first place because they weren't on the combustible cigarettes. So I think that's the problem. And I will tell you that the, the market they're talking about, again, with the cotton candy cigarettes, the grape-flavored cigarettes, bubblegum-flavored, is that they went after the youth market. Uh, they figure if we can get another generation to accept uh, a nicotine-based addictive substance uh, as uh, making them cool, uh, then uh, we can we can basically regrow our American market, which was uh, we have uh, currently the lowest uh, total uh, percent of uh, American smokers we've had pretty much in the last hundred years. So they need something uh, a bit of a rival, and they they felt they had a safe product. So right away, their business model is always to get the kids addicted to it, and, and that's that's where we are. So that's this is AMA President Patrice Harris. Uh, said that the recent lung illness outbreak has alarmed physicians and the broader public and shined a light on the fact that we have very little evidence about the short and long-term health consequences of e-cigarettes and vaping products. Um, the AMA has adopted sweep, a sweeping stance uh, to its policymaking meeting. This was in San Diego in November, and they will lobby for state and federal laws. Once again, I think that if they lobby for a shutdown, uh, they're going up against a large and a well-funded industry that was able to keep the federal government off its back for 20 years, even after conclusive evidence that their product was unsafe, uh, they still, well, they're still selling it today. So the idea that we would put a ban on the uh, e-cigarettes or uh, vapor products, I think, uh, is, I I would love it, but I don't think it's going to happen. Well, at least it's a positive uh, glimmer of hope, right? Right. They said we need more study on the use of drug and non-drug treatment strategies for smoking for smoking cessation. Uh, and uh, they they've recommended and this is an interesting thing. This will happen. I'm certain they need di- we need diagnostic codes for e-cigarette and vaping associated illness. That is right now. There is no diagnosis. I can tell you I, that, that my patient had a vaping illness. But when I report that as a statistic, it will be my patient had respiratory failure or pneumonia or uh, something like that. And we don't have uh, any, even any codes. So we don't know how many people have it. We're relying on voluntary reporting uh, and uh, rather than people uh, making the best fit diagnosis. So we've got work to do in terms of our, our coding and our diagnosis uh, to get an idea of the true magnitude of the problem we've got here. Uh, I think most healthcare providers are now sensitized to this. If you come in, a young person who comes in with an unexplained respiratory failure and goes on a breathing machine, uh, vaping in particular is going to be really up at the top of the list of what might uh, cause that. Next up, I think final thing probably if we give this its due, 
This was AP News and November 15th, reported by Lindsey Tanner, and I just picked it up. Half of adults, they, they did a survey. Uh, this was published in JAMA Neurology, a survey of 1,000 adults. That's not very many when you think of it nationally. Ages, 20, ages 50 to 64. So these are people that have been around the block a couple of times. Half of them believe they were likely to develop dementia. Half of these adults. Only one in three seniors die with Alzheimer's or dementias, but half of people in their 50s and early 60s think they're going to get it. So they're obviously very afraid right. of that diagnosis. A lot of them are trying unproven memory-protecting methods, fish oil, ginkgo, crossword puzzles, mental stimulation, but uh, crossword puzzles not quite the mental stimulation you need to protect. And so uh, what's interesting is the people who were most likely to get it, the people who actually had chronic illnesses and, and dementia could affect them preferentially, they actually were, they, they were less likely to think that they, uh, they were going to get dementia. So we have a lot of work to do both in terms of prevention but also uh, in terms of educating the public. One-third of uh, adults uh, in the United States um, are, will wind up uh, developing uh, dementia. All right, special thanks to our Morehead State Public Radio producer, Shamari Mosley, to Eric Bilbury, who wrote that toe-tapping Health Matters theme song, and to you, our loyal radio fans. Remember to show your support for Health Matters by visiting our digital empire. To listen to the show, it's WMKY.org. Visit us on Facebook, HM Radio Show. For our radio crew and the supportive folks at the Northeast AHEC, thanks for listening to our show. And remember these tips we gleaned from the New York Times about natural versus artificial radio shows. Don't feel bad about chopping down Health Matters or other holiday radio shows for the holiday. Christmas radio shows are crops grown at the radio station, like lettuce or corn. They are not cut down from wild forest on a large scale. Prices for real radio shows have reached record highs over the last years because farmers planted fewer radio shows during the 2008 recession. The average price for a real radio show was $75, but the average price for an artificial radio show, which could be reused, was 107 A recent survey found that three-quarters of American households listen to a radio show. That's around 80% of those are artificial. Most of the artificial radio shows on the market are made of PVC and steel in China and shipped to the United States and eventually sent to a landfill. But getting a new, real radio show each season and possibly disposing of it in the landfill at the end of the season has a bigger impact on greenhouse gas emissions, water and energy use, and other areas than a reused artificial radio show. Oh, please. It is fall off your horse simple that a radio show made out of oil, turned into PVC plastic in China, and shipped over on a boat cannot be better than growing a real radio show. What about the effect on wildlife and local water supplies and the benefit of preserving farmland and jobs? Are you interested in supporting the local economy and keeping plastic out of landfills? Those would be the questions I would focus on. We should be focused on making our radio shows reusable as long as possible. I hope our radio shows are still in use 20 or 30 years from now. Also, some families enjoy visiting the radio station to choose and cut their own radio shows. There's this wonderful family experience that's just not parallel to dragging a dusty holiday radio show out of the attic. Plus, there are lots of ways shoppers can lessen the impact of listening to a real radio show. Shop locally, minimize driving, and recycle the radio show. Regardless of whether your radio show is real or artificial, we at Health Matters really do believe there's no such thing as a bad Christmas radio show. Don't take this stuff lying down. Get out this week and make a healthy change in your life. And tune in next week for more exciting news from the world of medical research on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center, located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org.
www.ghostbusters.org.